From Ephesians chapter 4, listen for the word of the Lord. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. He himself granted that some are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. One thing I am certain you will not see at any other church by any other theologian in residence is a teaching moment where a children's spoon is pointed out at the congregation and green substance in the other hand. I assure you that is not served at the reception in just a few minutes, I promise you. <laughs> but what a great object lesson. The difference between baby food, that which gets us going, and to full-blown nourishment as Christians in the family of God. For those of you who read the bulletin uh, closely, you'll notice that each week we have a section uh, naming the liturgical season. It's on the back uh, cover of the bulletin. If you're a first-time visitor with us, everything I'm about to tell you will not be on an exit exam. You'll not be quizzed in order to get your uh, warm apple pie this week. I promise, I promise. Right now, as you see, we're in what's called ordinary time. It is neither feasting time like Christmas or Easter, nor is it a time of, of penance like Advent or Lent. It's a time in between the feast seasons, the feasting seasons, a time when we look at ourselves and we look at the nature of the church. That's the heading of the section from which our hymns come, the nature of the church, where we think about ways to grow. Our liturgical color for many, many, many weeks is green. More than half the season, more than half the liturgical year is green because it reminds us of regeneration, of new growth, of fresh starts, and of new beginnings. How appropriate is that for today? The period of ordinary time is a time historically when new Christian converts, like those who joined during the great 50 days of Easter, would learn more about the Christian faith. Ordinary, however, does not mean common or routine. It comes from the, the Latin. It, it means ordinalis. The church marks time with ordinals. It's counted time measured time. 
It's, it's time for the church to orient its life to a new rhythm, a new way of doing things, of seeing things, of hearing things that God is doing in this world. So you have the first Sunday after Pentecost and the second Sunday. Today is the sixth Sunday after Pentecost. What might we glean about the ways of God during this ordinary time? I say all that to also dispel any misconception that life with Jesus and life in the church should be ordinary, as if we are given permission to be ordinary. Like ordinary time means we get an extended break from being Christians, just the opposite. Now is the time for the community of faith to attend to matters of faith and develop a rhythm of faith, to mark those rhythms of faith with a higher calling. No more baby food. Something more substantive. Are we willing to live lives worthy of the calling to which we have been called with humility and with gentleness and with patience? Bearing with one another in love, making every effort, not some effort, not a moderate effort, every effort to maintain unity in the Spirit through the bond of peace. The goal of ordinary time is for the church to be anything but ordinary. Our youth would probably say, you mean like extra? Yeah, like extra, whatever that means. So thinking about the historic nature of today within the spotlight of the church in Ephesus, God is making ordinary time extraordinary. Each time the church models unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, you may remember from John chapter 17 that Jesus prayed for this. You know, just before his passion, he prayed for his disciples. He prayed for the disciples who were there. He prayed for future generations of disciples who would be so bold as to gather on a, on a summer Sunday in Montgomery, Alabama and hear the word of the Lord and celebrate a new appointment. Jesus prayed and said, Lord, let them be one as we are one. Let them be one, my followers, my church as we are one, so that when the world looks at the church, when the world looks at the Christian, the world will see a glimpse of the kingdom of God that is coming, of the kingdom of God that is already here. If we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, we strive toward unity. We commit to the hard work of unity within all of our relationships, within all of our spheres of influence, within our church, within the denomination, within the community and all the partnerships and the connections that we have. At the fore is unity. How will this build up the body? How will this make the precious body of Jesus Christ stronger? The people called Methodists have not always done a good job at doing our job. In 1784, Stay, stay with me. In 1784, the people called Methodists in America held the very first annual conference in Baltimore. They started that meeting on December 24th, and the conference lasted for 10 days, which had to be the worst Christmas vacation ever. 
And I pray to Jesus Christ our Lord that our bishop never decides to start meeting on Christmas Eve for 10 days, right? Can I get an amen? Amen. Conference staff over here, amen, right? It was at that conference that Francis Asbury was ordained an elder, elected a DS, and consecrated bishop within a three-day period. That's a fast track. Thomas Coke, Coke's Barry, Thomas Coke was also elected to an ecclesiastical office, and his contribution was part of the founding documents of Methodism, and it was a staunch opposition to the slave trade to the slave trade. The Methodist movement in England, the Methodist movement in America was founded on anti-slavery beliefs. And that sounds great, right? Only three years later, in 1787, which isn't too terribly long before this congregation was founded in 1829, in 1787, the people called Methodists would already begin splintering. Francis Asbury, you see, had recruited the one who was heralded as the finest preacher in all of America. His name was Richard Allen. He was a, he was a free man, a teacher, a theologian, a poet. The people called Methodists, at one time they would worship together until the bitterness, slavery, racism intervened. Asbury and Allen rode the circuits together, and Asbury, having ridden over 250,000 miles as a circuit rider, Asbury, early on, what he would do is he would yield, and he would allow Richard Allen to preach because Allen could move the hearts of people in ways that Asbury had never even imagined. And so in 1786, at St. George's, which was the first Methodist church in Philadelphia, which is the city of brotherly love... Allen was invited to preach to its minority congregation. Allen was given the 5 a.m. service, but it didn't take long before he began attracting more and more people. In Philadelphia at the time, 70% of the African uh, population was free. He would go around, Richard Allen would, and he would preach three or four other different churches throughout the day and to other congregations. It was so effective that the church just began to grow and to grow and to grow, and its white members became nervous in the city of brotherly love. The black parishioners of St. George were forced to relinquish their seats and then to sit along the walls. Eventually, balconies were built to segregate the congregation. Richard Allen decided that he would go to the senior pastor of that time and ask that the two congregations be separated. Let's form a, an African-American church and a white church. And the senior pastor said, no. So Richard Allen decided, you know, appointment season's coming. I'll just wait till the next senior minister comes in here and I'll ask him. Same answer. We're not going to do it. It's not going to happen. So the Free African Society formed in April of 1787. But one day in November of 1787, Absalom Jones, William White, Richard Allen, they came late to a service at their home church at St. George's Methodist Episcopal Church. And they just came to sit where they had always sat, you know. Um, way back in the 18th century, people had their own pews, kind of like we do now. You know, they went back to their own pews. 
And in the Methodist Episcopal Church, there was a lot of calisthenics of kneeling and, you know, to pray and to sitting back up. And so it was in that moment of prayer, they were kneeling in prayer. And one of the members of the board of trustees came over and said, you have to come with me. You can't sit here. To which Richard Allen said, just let me wait, just wait until the prayers are over. No, you have to come with me. An usher came over at that time. All three men were, were dragged out of their home church for the color of their skin. Allen later wrote, we all went out of the church in one body and they were no longer plagued by us in that church. For a denomination founded in part on equality, for an entire movement founded on unity, the people called Methodists failed in 1787. Now, Allen would go on to found Mother Bethel Church in 1794. He did not want that church to be a subsidiary of St. George's. He did not want it to be an African Episcopal church. He, despite the harm that had been done to him, he said, I want to remain Methodist. I want to remain in full communion with Asbury. And they were in their polity, in their friendship. And so it was at that moment he, he launched what is called the African Methodist Episcopal Church, known as the AME Church, the denomination where our own Reverend Rogers' membership is held today. Within the first two years, Allen grew the church from 20 to 121, and then in a few months, they were worshiping nearly 500 people. They started the equivalent of a first school and an ECDC and a night school for adults to learn how to read. Uh, one interesting fact is that his church that he founded would go on to be instrumental in the Underground Railroad. And what I found about Richard Allen's approach to ministry, he was later consecrated bishop, Bishop Allen's approach to ministry, is that his vision statement throughout all of those challenges comes from Ephesians. To build each other up, to maintain unity in the spirit through the bond of peace, to speak truth but in love, to bear with one another in love, to grow one with one another up maturely into Christ who is our head. The way I see it, today on this extraordinarily timely day, it's our effort to strive toward unity within the body of Christ and within our Methodist family. I can't help but think that Asbury, Coke, Bishop Allen, Papa John Wesley, and Mr. Jesus himself are sitting up there fist bumping saying, finally, they took a step or two together to maintain unity in the spirit through the bond of peace. Today is step one. Tomorrow is step two. The next day is step three along this extraordinary journey that God has in store for us together. New beginnings with God through the church, they offer us a chance to build something great, to build God's house, to do God's work. Striving toward unity of the spirit and the bond of peace is like building a house. And building a house is hard work. It takes time. It takes resources. God's house is built with the building blocks of faith, of hope, of love, of peace, of courage, of unity. I thought a lot this week about the building project that Ezra and Nehemiah undertook to build the temple, to build the house of God. There wasn't a a mega giver or a super builder. There wasn't anyone who stood out. There were just the people of God together. 
here's my resources. Here's my time. Here, here's the patience that I can offer. Here's the insight I can offer. Here's the silence that, that I can offer to this, to this effort. All the people contributed into some way. They were terrified. They didn't know where that building project was going and where the, what the future held, but they gave it to God. Working in unity to build God's house, it takes courage. Courage is not the absence of fear, my friends. Courage is having enough conviction to believe in something that will probably lead to loss, but then being willing to do it anyway. Loss of friends, loss of colleagues, loss of jobs, loss of members, loss of revenue. Because to me, there's something more important than the fear of loss, and that is the fear of the Lord. Because I don't want to stand before God one day and hear God say, my child, when the time came to strive toward unity, where were you? What did you do? When the time came to be a Galatians 3 kind of Christian, which says, in Christ there is no east nor west, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female. There's no distinctions. We're all one in Jesus Christ. When it came time to be that kind of Christian, where were you? When it came time to be a witness to the world as to how much God loves them, becoming one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world, as we say in our communion liturgy, where were you, Jay? Where were you? Unity in the bond of peace, being bastions for one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one family, one hope, one calling, one, it takes courage. It takes effort and it takes time, extraordinary time that God is giving us today. I had a strange thing happen to me a couple of weeks ago. I had been doing uh, some tractor work. Now, the strange thing to some of you is going to be that I know how to ride a tractor, right? <laughs> Somebody said amen. But I was trying to take advantage of this dry weather by mowing around the edges of a field. And I don't know if you've ever mowed around the edges of a field, but one of the challenges is to get as closely as you can to the tree line while also fighting the overhanging limbs. You ever done that? Oh, it's a battle royale. Well, I did that. And about the time I finished, Susan called to say that our daughter's car wouldn't start. So I rushed over to inspect things. Her battery cable was garbage, and I didn't have a way to, to fix it. I didn't know how to fix it. So I closed the hood, and I stood upright, and Susan was there with me, and she said, hey, you have some grease on your neck. And she tried to brush it off, and her eyes got as big as saucers, and she said, that's not grease, that's a tick. Whew. I said, well, get it off. She said, no, sir. You know, in sickness and in health, doesn't, you know. <laughs> so she pulls the tick out, and we inspect it from down there and decided what kind of tick it actually was, and I brushed it off, went on about my business, didn't think anything else about it. Nine days later, I thought, hmm, I don't feel so right. Low-grade headache, you know. Neck's a little sore. Neck wouldn't move. Chills at night. Maybe I should call a doctor. Now, I had been at a convention for a couple of days out of town, and I thought, maybe it's COVID. I did a lot of COVID testing. 
negative. I thought, maybe it's Lyme disease. No, this tick doesn't have that kind of Lyme. Maybe it's just the side effects of that particular kind of small parasite that are infecting my body. And sure enough, it was tick fever. I think that's my medical term. But there it is, tick fever that was affecting my entire body. Chills, fever, achiness, couldn't move, tired. Isn't it amazing how something so small can shut down an entire body? Well, I thought a lot about that little critter and how it wreaked havoc on this body of mine, causing pain and fatigue. And then I thought about all that's going on in the world, and I thought about other parasites that are trying to break down the body and how a single bite of negativity or gossip or anger or fear can slowly creep its way, the toxins, into the body and break it down. And before you know it, there's disunity. I also know that it only takes a little bite to be infected with some joy and some hope a little bit of promise. Single bite can positively or adversely affect every effort we're trying to make to maintain the unity of the spirit through the body, through the bond of peace. The local church is a local church for a reason. It's because we are comprised of real people in real places with real life experiences I've also thought this week a lot about what the psalmist says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live in unity. The challenge is life is, is so messy. The smallest bites infect the body and poof, we're no longer acting like Christians. We're tossed to and fro by the winds and the waves and before long the church begins to feel it. I've thought a lot about this past week about uh, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's work in Life Together. He says Christian community means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. There's no community that is more than this. There's none that is less than this. Whether it's a brief single encounter or the daily community over many years, the Christian community is solely this. We belong together through and in Jesus Christ. We belong together. In local congregations, we're certain to have differences of opinion, differences of disagreements. Over 200 times, Paul uses the phrase brothers and sisters. It's because he knows that siblings are going to have problems, and that's okay. But Christ is present in our midst, and we remain together in all the messiness, in all the tension, with all the biting that's going on, and we lean into these words, lead a life worthy of your calling by maintaining unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So I want to offer some practical ways to think about that because we can, it's much easier these days to avoid the, the tiny points of disagreement. Christopher Smith, I think, is who said that. Too many churches remain uh, on the baby food uh, because they go to great lengths to avoid the tiniest semblances of disagreements. We do that. One little pressure point, boom, we're, it's just too hard. One little bite, boom, it's, it's too hard. I would add it's much easier to avoid those tiny points of disagreement than to take a little seed of hope, a little bit of promise, 
a little bit of love, a little bit of care, and to just pull back some dirt and to put that seed down in there, cover it up, water it, nurture it, because it, we might not see it grow, but 10 years from now, 20 years from now, the seeds that we plant of unity and of peace and of joy are going to grow into great trees under whose shade future generations of Methodists will sit and find shelter and find peace and find joy and find hope. That's how unity works. We take the hard steps now and we move toward a great future with God. How does that happen? What are some tangible ways? Well, somebody in our church shared with me some ways to do that. We were thinking through what it means to build up and tear down and all the divisiveness. And the church members said, said, uh, sent this, said, as the world fights to figure everything out, I'll be holding doors open for strangers. There's a seed. I'll be letting people cut in front of me in traffic. There's a seed. I'll be saying good morning. There's a seed. Keeping babies entertained in grocery lines. Stopping to talk to someone who is lonely. Tipping generously. Waving at police. Sharing food. Giving children a thumbs up. Being patient with sales clerks. Smiling at passerbys. And uh, buying a, a cup of coffee for a stranger. Why? Because I will not stand to live in a world where love is invisible. We are not called to live in a world, to be a church where love or unity or peace or joy are invisible. How will the world know of God's great love lest the church practice unity of the Spirit through the bonds of peace? Jesus prayed that his followers would be one as he is one. Paul said, I beg you, I urge you, lead a life worthy of your calling. Today on this day of ordinary time, we step into God's extraordinary grace together for the next chapter in our story. Amen.